You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad today to have a special guest, Dr. Lucas Bryant. I asked him as a personal favor to come on our show because I've really seen him moving into what I will call the new school of medicine. The way of building a practice of old just doesn't work the same as it used to. And so Dr. Bryant's been so gracious to come on today. He is a duly board certified facial plastic surgeon with a focus on cosmetic facial surgery. And he trained with some of the preeminent facial rejuvenation surgeons in the world. So really has a great practice, but not just a practice. And this is what we're going to talk about today. And what I'm so impressed with, he also has a business and there's a difference. You know, if we think about his practice, he actually has a trademarked brand that he is building behind it. It's a very different approach to the way that a lot of doctors are building their practices today. And I just think he's incredibly impressive and definitely one of the most entrepreneurial doctors that I've met. So very excited to have you with us here today, Dr. Bryant. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, let's back up before we go into actually building your practice. You know, you didn't start there. You grew up somewhere. So where did you grow up? Yeah, so I am a native to Minnesota. I was actually born in Wyoming, but I grew up mostly in Minnesota. Rural town, you know, they call Minnesota the land of lakes because there's just water everywhere. So I definitely uh, am pretty fond of water sports and water activities. It does get pretty cold there in the winter, though. And so that's why we kind of ended up, after all my medical training, relocating to Nashville for my practice. Much better weather in Nashville, for sure. Yeah, you would think so. Once in a while, it still gets pretty chilly here, but uh, I can never complain to my parents because they always can one-up me with the weather. I was actually in Nashville the one day it had like a big snow blizzard several years ago and nobody had shovels. I mean, it was just incredible. Yeah. Nobody was able to salt the roads. Nobody had shovels. It was just like, what is happening? We have maybe two inches of snow on the ground and the whole city's shutting down. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, it's it's one of the cities where like it's very unlikely. So nobody comes like ready or supplied for a storm. But once in a while, we roll the unlucky dice and then we're all kind of stuck here with, you know, are we going to use a broom to, to clear our driveway or what? So, Well, I'm curious, Dr. Bryant, what made you go into medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. So like a lot of people I met kind of going through the system had a family member or somebody who was a doctor or at least in the medical field that kind of turned them on. And I didn't really have that. Nobody in my family even had like a science background. And I was originally really interested in animals. And that was probably what kind of got me into science. I was always learning about, you know, different reptiles and amphibians and whatever I could see in my backyard. But then as that kind of passion grew, I became more interested in people because I think the relational aspect and obviously we're more dynamic in a lot of ways. And so medicine was kind of the melding, I guess, of both that that relational aspect and that human nature along with 
the science and the scientific kind of approach and tendencies that I was drawn to. So Dr. Bryant, you know, you, you go to college, you found this kind of enthusiasm in the sciences, but that's not the point you ultimately decide to go into medicine. How did that actually happen? Yeah. So I was in college at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities, and there's a lot of great resources there. And I was kind of exploring career options. And as part of that, I decided to take a leadership trip to Nepal. It was about a two-week trip. I'd never left the country before. You do this big hike to the base camp of Annapurna. And Part of the leadership camp was they gave you a project where you had to serve the local communities that we went through in a special way. And what I kind of realized was that as a college student, I didn't feel like I had much to offer them that was something that they couldn't do themselves. So it would be, you know, a convenience, but I didn't have like a skill or a special way to help them. And I just kind of took a step back and was like, you know what, it would be so much cooler if I had a really hard to get difficult and unique skill set so that I could help them in like in a more special way. And that was when it kind of clicked for me where I was like, you know, I think I need to go to medical school. And I know it's a lot of work, but on the other side of it, I'm going to have a unique set of skills that will let me, I think, be more impactful in my endeavors. So I love that. And we're going to come back to later in this show and actually talk about some of the work that you're able to do overseas. So we'll actually bring this full circle. Before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about the practice that you're now building in Nashville. As I think about medicine, I'm going to draw a couple of parallels to the show Survivor, which our listeners may or may not know, I enjoy with my son, who hopes to actually apply soon now that he's turning 16, which is the minimum age that you're allowed to apply to go on Survivor. So he's he's working on that right now. But in Survivor, they really talk about old school versus new school. And, and the simple fact is the way that people originally played the game in the first one through 10 seasons is very different than the way the game is now played after that. And I've seen that same thing happening in medicine. It seems to me that the playbook of the past is not necessarily the playbook of the future. And you've Mm -hmm. actually been a mentor in that for me. And so I'd love, Dr. Brian, if you would talk to our audience, a lot of them are business owners or founders, a lot of physicians. Talk to us about this kind of playbook of the future that you believe is what helps bring medicine forward? Yeah. So, I mean, medicine is a constantly evolving scene, right? And there's always kind of this balance between, you know, historically it was you graduate medical school, you find a little office space, you hang a sign up, and then people just kind of start showing up and and that's your practice. And then, you know, as we've really kind of grown and expanded and become more complex, it turns into multi, multiple physician groups and then multiple specialty groups where you have different kind of doctors together. And that started to turn into a pretty big headache, right? And so doctors usually kind of show up and they're like, I'm trained and got into this to take care of patients, not to manage these complex 
massive businesses. So there started to be this big shift of selling those practices to venture capital or hospitals or being hired by a hospital. And that's still a valid practice. But I think in that case, one of the challenges is that the people managing that practice are a little bit separated from the patient or the patient experience, you know? I appreciate your tact in saying a little bit separated. My experience is a lot of times they're a lot separated. Yeah, for sure. And I think they come after it from a different perspective where the leadership in that business is experienced and good and trained at running a practice, but often has little to no experience in medicine or like what that means to be part of like, you know, the physician patient relationship, which is what's so unique in medicine. And so you kind of lose that special sauce in your practice out of necessity in that system. And so I think some enterprising physicians are saying, you know, like this isn't the dream that I had when I started. And so we're kind of going back a little bit to that hang up a shingle and keep it more direct, right? And you're seeing that in other areas of our economy as well, where we're doing some more like direct to consumer, right? And that's kind of where I came in and I'm kind of rediscovering that, which is, you know, I heard a quote recently where someone said, you know, I got sick of the nine to five grind. So I started my own business and now I work 24 seven. That sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things you've shared with me is that the things even that your mentors, and and you've had some incredible mentors in uh, medicine, but the things that your mentors did to build a practice Mm -hmm. aren't relevant today the same way that they were when they were going through those things. You know, historically, your notoriety as a physician or surgeon comes from either other doctors or physicians referring patients to you and just time spent in practice, right? So the longer you're there, the more patients you know, the more word of mouth that you get, the more people you see, the more, you know, it's additive as like a snowball effect. And as things like social media and website marketing and Instagram have kind of evolved, And this is a little bit different for uh, like a cosmetic or a cash-based practice where our patients usually find us searching specifically for the physician versus in a lot of insurance cases still, you know, you go to your doctor and they send you to another doctor. It's not as powerful, but it is changing in that era as well or that arena is if you're good at presenting yourself on the social media space as an expert or as experienced or having a specific skill set, you can kind of leapfrog years and years of building that kind of inertia or momentum. And your audience is much wider, right? Like you have access to the entire world. And so you're seeing a lot of younger people that are pretty savvy with those things gain success quicker. And On the other side of it, if you ignore that or you're resistant to it, because that's kind of the new way, you'll see people that are great physicians and have a great practice and great results start to struggle a little bit because they're kind of walking down the road that nobody's on anymore. Absolutely. You know, you've done an incredible job building up a social media 
presence for your practice. And one of the ways that you've been very successful in doing that is happy patients. I mean, imagine Mm -hmm. that patients that are become raving fans of what you're doing. And you've been very, very effective with the use of testimonials. And I know a lot of doctors seem to shy away from this. And when I talk with them and I say, you know, what's holding you back from what may be one of their most powerful marketing opportunities? A -hmm. lot of times what they'll tell me is, I just don't want to ask my patient. So I wonder, could you share with our audience, what is it that you do to ask a patient or approach a patient in a way that isn't making them feel uncomfortable? And the ones that want to say no can say no. The ones that want to say yes can say yes. How do you Mm -hmm. approach that? You're doing it so effectively. And unfortunately, a lot of practices are not. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of it is, and a lot of this actually goes into training where you're kind of taught in your medical school training that it's about the patient. It's not about money. This isn't a business. It's a relationship. And one day I kind of took a step back and I looked and I'm like, it's a unique career, but it's a business whether you like it or not. And so if you ignore the fact that medical practice is a business, it doesn't mean you're not running a business. It just means you're doing a really bad job at running a business because you're pretending it's not. And so when you look at it from that approach and you realize that like, if I don't do these things, if I have happy patients and I'm not helping them use their voice to share their good experience, my perspective change where I realize what I'm doing is inhibiting my ability to take good care of other patients. Because if they can't find me and they don't know about me, then we're never going to meet and I'm never going to have the opportunity to care for them in a way that I think will help them. And so if you change that perspective of it's not a marketing opportunity where you're trying to get something from them, but you're just trying to get them to share their story so that maybe they can connect with someone else and you can help that other patient as well. I think that gets rid of some of the like the physician guilt of doing those things. And then you have to provide definitely the patient with the easy way to do it. So initially I would say, oh, you're happy, go leave a review, you know, and they're like, yeah, sure, great. And then they go home and Their kid spills chocolate milk in the car and never think about it again, even if they have the best intentions. So we have a QR code at our office that they can scan, which will link their phone right to the review page, which is super helpful. And then we also have an automated communication system that does appointment reminders. But also once that appointment is completed, it just checks in and says, you know, thanks for your visit. You know, here's a link to your medical record to review your notes and results if you want. And how would you rate our service? And I also think that's important because if it's, you know, most of them are set up where if they give you a five star rank or a five star review, it then pushes that over to Google and says, you know, like, hey, could you say that same thing at Google? And then if they give you a two star review, it's not going to say, hey, go put that on Google but it alerts your office and your practice and says, hey, this is what they said. This is how they'd like you to improve. And while those are uncommon, those are also super helpful because it helps you identify the patient who maybe had a rough spot or something they weren't super happy with, but they didn't want to bring it up or make a big deal out of it. And now you can circle back and and provide better care for them. So definitely, I think 
being confident in asking for them. And I will personally ask patients. I do also think that's a huge thing. So if I identify a patient who I think it's pretty clear they like to share their story and they're they're happy, I'll just ask them as the doctor, hey, if you're really happy with your experience here, it means a lot to us if you share that. You know, here's the link, you know, do you mind leaving a review later today? And as you know, the patient has a special relationship with their surgeon or with their physician. And so trying to offload that into having someone else from your office, I think really decreases the yield of the patient responding it. So, and that's just like, you know, with this podcast, like if you had your assistant reach out to me, it's probably a little bit harder to get connected. But when you reached out personally and were like, hey, like, can we do this? You're going to get my attention faster and everything's just going to work better, right? Absolutely. I'm going to boil that back to what I took away. So first, that it is important that it's coming from you as the doctor. This is not something that you want to hand off to your team. And then more Mm -hmm. importantly, that it's really about mindset. And in that, you know, a mentor taught me once, like, get out of sales and get into education and just think of your job as helping people become more informed decision makers. That was so comforting for me because I didn't want to be that used car guy. I just didn't want to be in that side of the world. But I love education. And that's what I heard you saying is. You know, when I started thinking about it in terms of I just need to provide good education for people out there so they can get connected if this would be the best thing for them, that really resonated with me. That's really, really strong. One of the things this makes me think about, Dr. Bryant, one of my favorite management frameworks in business is something called the balance scorecard. And Mm -hmm. this doesn't get talked about a whole lot in private equity because A lot of times in private equity, unless it's like permanent capital, we talked about that type of concept with a prior guest named Brent Bishore, who's raising money for 30-year investments. So he can think long-term, but normally with private equity, they're thinking very short-term, a a five-year flip on an investment they made. And so here's what I'm seeing happen in medicine is much more of a short-term profit outlook. And the balanced scorecard framework says, wait, 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 if we want to drive long-term profits, we can work our way back into that. Where does it start from there? Well, to have long-term great profits, we have to have really happy customers. Well, how do we get really happy customers? We have to have great systems and processes that deliver high-quality, repeatable results. And then most importantly, and this is where I want to push in with you next, how do you get great repeatable processes that deliver high quality results so that you can have Mm -hmm. really happy customers? Well, that all starts with having outstanding people in the Mm -hmm. team to deliver that and drive that. And one of the things that was so impressive for me, Dr. Bryant, when I was going through, you know, online, anybody can go find reviews. And listeners, I'd I'd encourage you to go look at Dr. Bryant's reviews. On almost all of them, you see the patient not only raving about Dr. Bryant, you also see them talking about the quality of his team and specific teammates and how they were made to feel comfortable or important or special or set at ease. These are all terms that you find 
in the reviews. And so what I want to ask you is, as you're building your practice, what is it that you're doing to invest in and develop such an incredible team that your patients would not just rave about you, but they would also rave about your teammates? Yeah. So that's definitely a challenge, especially as, and it becomes more of a challenge, the better you are at it. So the more you grow due to the success of your previous decisions, you know, the more challenges you have. And we were super focused when hiring people about being really specific about not as much focusing on their skills, because I think a lot of skills you can train if you find the right person, but focusing on the character qualities and the type of person they are, you know, so you can have an educated person who's not motivated to create change. And at that point, their qualifications are not going to be helpful to you in your business, right? Or you can have someone who maybe didn't learn as much, but is eager and they're spending some time in the evenings trying to play catch up and they're very dedicated. And that person that a phrase I use a lot is you can have, there's two types of people, there's problem finders and there's problem solvers. And we want problem solvers in our office. And I think that is a huge difference of that because creating an environment where everyone is paying attention and looking for those ways to help someone who maybe is a little uncomfortable or giving them a call the next day because you remember that their dog was sick and you just want to make sure they're feeling okay and that everything's all right goes a long way. But I think at the end of the day, what really catches on with the patients is just that we actually care about them and we foster that relationship and we're not reading off of a scripted line and being polite about it, we actually care. And so we have a relationship with them. And I think that really falls well under the phrase that I will constantly repeat in my office is approachable sophistication. We're sophisticated in every way. We don't cut corners, but we're also approachable and friendly. And And I don't want patients to feel like that sophistication makes you you know, kind of this like high and mighty situation where they can't relax and and open up. That's fantastic. So when you're looking to hire a team member, how is it that you are screening for that kind of that element of do they actually care about people? Yep. How do you do that? My wife. No. (laughs) So my wife helps a lot at the office. She manages the practice. And I think one thing that has helped me is if you have somebody who is a good reader of people, right? Like some people have that kind of fifth sense and that intuition that certainly is helpful in that situation. But I will sometimes ask questions during the interview that maybe are unexpected and give them an opportunity to respond. Give us some examples of questions like that. One of my favorite questions to ask is I'll just say, are you a good person? And I'll be quiet and you'll let them answer. And the way that they answer the things that they say, I think you will you'll learn a lot about that person very quickly. Their confidence, their creativity, you know, humility, pride, all of that will come out pretty well if you just ask that question and are quiet. Love it. The other thing that's important is when you, you know, when you find the right person, identifying that, you know, maybe you hired them and they're the right person on the bus, but they're not in the right seat. And so, 
in some cases, you know, if it's the right person and you, you want to keep them, you might need to put them in a different seat and you may find that they thrive better there. But from my research, I also know that if it's not the right fit, it feels terrible. Nobody likes it, but like you have to cut that tie because dragging that out starts to affect everybody. And so one of the hardest things starting out was being willing to cut that connection because it's horrible. You feel bad. You know, the employee feels bad, but you have to protect what you committed to. And you, if you make that commitment for something, you got to stick with it. One of the things I know about you, Dr. Brian, is like me, you just have this deep care for people. And as a leader, as a manager, that was a very hard lesson for me that, oh, I care about this person. I care about their family. A lot of times I know their children and I don't want to let them go. Ultimately, what I've realized is I need to care just as much about the people who are here doing incredible work. I know their kids, mm -hmm. I know their families, and I owe it to their families to make those hard decisions because otherwise it yeah. holds everybody else back. And that's been a helpful mm -hmm. pivot for me going through. A couple more questions on your practice. So dream for me, if you will, we're 10 years down the road yeah. and you're continuing to build this incredible practice in Nashville. What does it look like 10 years down the road? Yeah, I mean, as healthcare evolves, I think sometimes the patient experience expectations evolve with it. It's kind of funny because I opened my current office location like a year and a half ago, and we've already outgrown it. So we're going to be building a new medical center in the near future and focusing on, you know, not like if you think about great companies, right, it's not like, can we match what other people have? It's always, you know, like there's something new. There's like an excitement of like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Like Tesla has the door handle that retracts in and that's what gets you excited and has you talk about it. So we really want to focus on being more all inclusive with a patient where we're going to have a lot of our patients come from out of town. So we're going to have like a suite where they can stay if they're in town, just at our center, instead of having to rely on, you know, some other hotel availability in transit. We already have some overnight concierge care. Our operating room will be on site and a lot of those things. But in reality, the most important thing is what you said is growth is I'm not going to grow just to grow. Because you can't just hire hire extra people to get bigger at the cost of the practice mission. And so kind of going back to your previous question, we are super slow to bring people on because our main focus is providing that unified vision of excellence and honesty in everything we do. And I think if you do that right, you're always going to feel like you're a little bit behind on the growth curve because you're not just adding things to add stuff. But that's also what's going to keep the demand and the patient experience higher. Absolutely. Does that make sense? It does. And Dr. Brian, it's so fun for me to hear, you know, some of the things you're doing today, we talked about five, six years ago, and you were dreaming about those things as part of a 10-year mission and here you are, yeah. you know, cutting that timeline in half 
you know, building your own center and just some of the things you were dreaming about just at the time you're coming out of your training. I mean, it's, it's really yeah. incredible to see that. And that was something I was going to ask you about, you know, due to your social media presence, I was wondering if you have destination medicine happening where people are actually coming to you from, mm-hmm. you know, other places outside of Nashville. Yeah, I think probably 30 or 40% of my patients are not from Nashville. A lot of them obviously find me online or they're from friends and family and they don't live local. But we actually have started even seeing some international patients. So we're working with some people from Turkey or we were, unfortunately not right now. And then Germany, as well as like Mexico and Canada. And listeners, Dr. Bryant's comment about not right now is we are in March of 2022, still dealing with the ramifications of the COVID pandemic. So if you're tuning in later, that's why not right now. But hopefully there's the opportunity for that to come back as borders continue to open in the near future. But that's incredible. I would not have expected it to be 30 to 40%. That seems much higher than what I've heard from other people. One of my best friend's fathers gave us advice when I was in high school and was doing landscaping was he said, there's always room at the top, right? And so one of the things that I've kind of learned, because I started my practice on my own, I left the old office I was with in the middle of the COVID pandemic, right? Which is kind of like the worst time you would think to start a business. But his point, I think, is well taken that if you just focus on being the best I think people appreciate that and it's a struggle. It's certainly not the easy road, but I think there's an aspect of survivability to a practice that exudes excellence and provides the best care possible. Absolutely. Well, this has been incredible. Love learning about your practice. You also have another passion. And so I do want to circle us back to some of the work that you get to do, at least prior to the pandemic some of the work you get to do overseas, really bringing this thing full circle to you being in Nepal, realizing if I had a well-crafted skill and could get out there and use that for good, and you're doing that. So tell our listeners about that. It's honestly like one of the highlights of my entire year when I get to go on the, the pro bono medical mission trips. And so To date, I've gone to Ecuador and Colombia. Colombia is typically an annual trip. We didn't go the last couple of years because of the COVID pandemic, but I think we're looking at ramping that back up. And it's a really fun experience where you can take these skills you have and bring them where there's a significant need and a shortage in that and just do what we're here on earth to do, right? Which is to be helpful and contribute. And when we go, it's, you know, people think of the mission trips as like a couple of doctors just roll into a city and like save the world, right? But it's it's a very misguided approach. So usually what happens is, you know, we've got 20, 30 people on this trip and there's hours and hours of preparation, making sure you have the headlights, the instruments. I mean, we all are bringing suitcase upon suitcase on this trip. Because they have the operating room, but they don't have all the stuff we use. So we're bringing anesthesia machines. All this has to come with you. And the logistics of that is unbelievable. And then you get there and the trip is usually a week long. And the first day you screen a couple of hundred patients 
And you have to do it right away because you have to find the surgical candidates, examine them, and then get your whole week set up for surgery. And then we usually operate on like 60 kids. Most of the cases that we do on the trips I'm in are congenital birth defects, like cleft lips, cleft palates. We do some microtia where a child that's born without an ear, we take some rib cartilage and we basically sculpt a replacement ear to mirror their other ear. And then it's fun because you come back the next year and you get to see the same kids, you know, as they grow up. And it's it's super rewarding. I love that. You know, there's a journalist that asks you once, what is your favorite patient reaction? And it wasn't talking about someone that had an incredible uh, cosmetic facial procedure in your office. You actually talked about these kids overseas and not just the kids, but their parents and the joy that they get yeah. to experience seeing their children be pain-free or get to feel, you know, like they belong maybe for the first time yeah. in many cases. Yeah. It is a very humbling experience because you just like, I'm just happy to be a part of it. Right. And you get to be in that environment and see that improvement and that change. And it's not gratitude to me. It's just happiness that, you know, this kid that had, difficulty speaking and eating because they had a cleft lip and they couldn't swallow or they couldn't talk right. And now, you know, they have a, a normal life and their speech is fine. And like you look at them and you can't even tell anything happened. So it's awesome. That's incredible. I've gotten to be a part of several short-term missions trip. And I've always experienced this and I've, I've heard this, that a lot of times it's actually we that end up getting even more out of the experience than the people that were there to serve. Yeah. And it's so cool that you have that heart. Thank you for doing that. We get to move now into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question everybody wants to know. And what that really means is it's the question I want to know. And then the <laughs> second is the real question that people want to know. So my question for you today, I have a 16-year-old. He's excelling in school, loves science, math, all these things. He's considering the future. He's thought about going into medicine. And we have yeah. so many friends who are doctors. And by and large, most of them are telling him, stay away. Don't do it. Stay as far away from this as you can. I yeah. want to ask that same question to you, Dr. Bryant. If, if he were coming to you saying, what do you think if you could go do it again, would you become a doctor still? Would you encourage your mm -hmm. children to become a doctor? How would you answer that question? Yeah. So the environment has certainly changed. And I think the answer is maybe. And the reality is that there's a lot more opportunities and ways to be involved in healthcare as a field than just being a doctor at this point. And so I think part of it is kind of understanding who you are as a person and maybe what your interests are in medicine that drew you to consider the field of medicine, not just being a doctor. And so for me, I knew I wanted to operate. I've, every job I've ever had is with my hands, creating things and doing manual effort and work. And so it, as a surgeon and having an artistic tendency with doing cosmetic surgery, being a physician and medical doctor is really the only way to go. 
But if your focus is more on the relationship and just patient care and being in the medical field, the reality is, like we said, you know, it's a business whether you want it to be or not. Your return on investment is not always best spent as a physician or a doctor. And everyone does work at it as a team. There's not like a pinnacle achievement like, oh, well, if you're not a doctor, it doesn't really count, you know? And so getting rid of that stigma and saying, you know, like being a physician assistant or a CRNA or a nurse practitioner or a nurse may be a better fit for you as an individual. And so the only way you can answer that is to know yourself and to spend a lot of time hanging out with those types of people to figure out, you know, which one seems like being a best fit for you. Well, that's definitely a more positive response than I've gotten from most of my physician friends recently. (laughs) So, and maybe part of that is you've learned how to adapt to this kind of new school of medicine and Mm -hmm. maintain your freedom as an entrepreneur instead of having to get dragged into the kind of bureaucracy of bigger healthcare. So maybe that's a piece of it. There are doctors that are absolutely thriving right now. And it looks different than what most people who go into medical school that are kind of put on the assembly line of you go here, you do this, you show up, you take a job for somebody else and you do charting till you die. I don't think that aspect of medicine as a doctor, those people aren't thriving right now. And so there's a reckoning, but there is a way around it. You just have to want it. So. Well, I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, the real question I think some of our listeners have, Dr. Bryant, is, you know, they've listened in, they've now heard about you being uh, just really passionate about the way that you do cosmetic facial surgery. Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to speak to what are the procedures that you most enjoy helping patients with? And then also, who are the right patients for you? And how can they best reach out to you? If they're listening and they realize, wow, that's something I've been thinking about and they want to get in touch with you. Yeah. So I do all aspects of facial plastic surgery. I exclusively do surgical and non-surgical treatments of the, the head and neck. And one of the motivating factors for that was I became convinced in my training that if you really want to be truly excellent at something, you have to focus on that right? You can't do everything else at the same time. And so that was kind of what I fell in love with and decided to focus on. For a lot of patients, if they have any interests or questions in facial rejuvenation or aging changes that happen, or for, I do a lot of nose jobs or rhinoplasties, the next best step is to really set up a consult. And with my consults, I focus, like you had said earlier, in our talk about the education, right? So I'll tell all my patients when they come meet me, you know, my main goal for them, if we talk, is to learn about what bugs them or the things that they're trying to achieve, and then just to educate them and make sure that they understand what options they have, because there's always more than one. It's often not surgery that's needed or even appropriate. But the cosmetic industry is filled with advertisements and catchy taglines and new treatments. And there's kind of a lot of snake oil in my industry. I tell patients always my main goal for them is to help them kind of sift through that and figure out like what's reality and what and what would be a customized approach for them. I'm off script here, but I have to ask, 
I feel like more and more and more, I'm seeing these very unnatural looking lip treatments. Yeah. Like they're everywhere. What is happening? Why is this happening in so much mass right now? Yeah. So a lot of it is trends, right? And a lot of it is you use the tools that you have in your toolbox. So, you know, there's only a few thousand plastic surgeons. And so I do a lot of lip treatments and sometimes adding volume to a lip is the right choice. But what I'll tell patients is if you don't like the shape of your lip, it's very difficult to change the shape by adding volume. You're just going to have a bigger version of a shape you don't like. And that's what you're seeing, right? There's a couple thousand plastic surgeons and then there's like probably a couple hundred thousand of people that can do facial injections. And so if that's the tool you have, you're going to use it in every case, right? And then it doesn't quite work. And you're like, well, maybe if I do it more. And it's funny because I was talking to a patient from California who was really involved and had a bunch of yoga studios. And she was like, you'd see this evolution where like a new person would come in and join the yoga studio. And then all of a sudden over like the next couple months, like we'll kind of look like everyone else at the yoga studio (laughs) because you all do the same thing, right? Yeah. And so I focus a lot on the multidimensional or the multifaceted nature of our facial harmony. That I think is what's going to give you an excellent result that looks natural because people want to look rejuvenated. They don't want to look different. And a lot of people, the other kind of interesting aspect since we're talking about it, you know, is a lot of patients will say, well, I don't want that treatment because I've seen it and it looks bad. And my response to that is always like, you've seen it a lot of times and it looks great because you didn't notice it. And the ones that you remember are the ones that weren't done with facial harmony in mind. And so we get really awesome results and our patients love what we do. That's great. So if they want to reach out and get connected with you, what is your website? Yeah. So um, our website is refinesurgery.com, R-E-F-I-N-E-S-U-R-G-E-R-Y.com. And we also have a lot of patient interaction and engagement on our Instagram. My primary Instagram is Lucas Bryant MD. And that's a good way to kind of see, get to know our practice, you know, if you're considering it. And then probably a third to half of our consults are done remotely. So if someone is out of town and just has some questions, we can always set up a Zoom or video call for them. And that's wonderful because now the whole world knows how to jump on a Zoom meeting. Yeah, right. Your timing is also really fortuitous in being able to move into this destination medicine. So for sure. That's great. Well, Dr. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. I hope some of our listeners will reach out to you because I know you do incredible work and just really impressed with the way you're building an incredible business, not just the medical practice. You're thinking about brand But the piece I appreciate the most is that you're thinking about brand in terms of how can you build a brand that's based on caring for people and delivering outstanding results that they are Mm -hmm. proud of. So really, really neat to know you and get to hear about that and to see you accomplish goals in five years that you set out for 10 years. So incredible work. Awesome. It was really nice catching up, Tom. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us here at Beyond the Ordinary. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. 
If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.